0: After the year 1965, that piece of music you have just heard may be the single most explanatory factor for one thing. Girls being named Michelle. But here we must pause for a spoiler alert. What you have just heard was performed not by the Beatles, but by Stroll Down Penny Lane. And that is just what you are in for. A stroll down Penny Lane. And this is Joe Anastasi, your narrator for our exploration back through time, in fact, covering some 65 years of music, where we celebrate the life and music of Paul McCartney. Okay, here we go. Let's dig in. Let's investigate this song, Michel. There will be three threads in our narrative. The first thread will be the genesis of this song, Michel, its creation story, if you will. In the second thread of this narrative, we will explore how Paul McCartney's bass playing was fundamentally transformed by his experience in the recording of this song and how he was influenced by a couple of key musicians. Finally, we will explore both the voodoo and the devil in Michelle, so hang in there if this topic piques your interest. Now, to investigate the first thread in our narrative, the creation story for this song, we need to repeat the acoustic guitar figure that opens the song, but not with the pitches we all remember from the record. We need to play this guitar lick the way Paul did it first, back when he was just a teenager. Okay, that was exactly how Paul would play that guitar figure in the key of C when he had first created it. Now, having successfully established this, we can continue with the creation story for this song. So let's use our little time machine and go back in time to understand its genesis. We just press this button and off we go. If we were to go into the living room of this tidy, semi-detached home, we would be able to observe Paul, who is now a chubby-cheeked teenager, strumming away on his very first guitar, a Zenith model acoustic guitar. It turns out that Paul's acoustic guitar was the cheapest guitar that would have been available in Hesse's Music Store in Liverpool in 1956. And as an aside, it was on this guitar just about a year later in 1957 that Paul learned to play the song 20 Flight Rock, the song that got him an introduction to John Lennon and an invitation to join John's group, The Quarry Men.
2: Oh well, I got a girl in the record machine when it comes to rocking, she's a queen. went to a dance on a Saturday night. Hold her on where hold her tight. She lives on the 24 uptime.
0: So from this we can see that it didn't take long for Paul to get some traction with this guitar. Now we need the services of our time machine again to fast forward just two years more. We have landed in the year 1959. We are still in Liverpool and it is nighttime. And we see we are inside someone's house. We can see teenagers coming in and out. It's a party. We can also see at this party a very young John Lennon and also the fresh-faced teenager Paul McCartney. Both are trying to score a beer and a chat with the girls. It turns out that Paul is only 17 years old. His immediate challenge is that he is still chubby-cheeked. To sort of compensate, he has developed a series of stratagems. The first has to do with positional location. To satisfy this requirement, Paul has hunkered down in a corner of the room. We can see that our fresh-faced Paul McCartney has this very same Zenith acoustic guitar with him. Having the guitar in hand is also part of young Paul's stratagem. But there is another element to Paul's stratagem in attending this party this evening. It is his choice of what to wear in an effort to make himself look older Paul has purposely chosen to wear a black turtleneck and with this black turtleneck we are getting warmer now why the answer is because we are getting closer to the very inception of the creation story for his song
2: Michelle I'm getting closer I'm getting closer
0: But how, you might ask, is Paul's choice to wear a black turtleneck getting us closer to the origin of this song, Michel? To suss this out, let's review how Paul has recollected this very evening when he had been a teenager. And when we do this, we will see that it is this turtleneck that reveals the genesis of this song, Michelle. Here are Paul's words. I remember sitting around there, and my recollection is of a black turtleneck sweater and sitting very enigmatically in the corner playing this rather French tune. But what is it about Paul's recollection of this black turtleneck sweater, what does this have to do with the creation of his song, Michel? Let's continue with Paul's recollection of this time frame. He said, I used to pretend I could speak French.
2: La mer
0: Because everyone wanted to be like Sasha Distel.
2: Qu'on voit danser les des
0: now, Paul has provided us with a couple of clues here. Let's summarize. He has explained how he would sit there in the corner and play a bit of something on his acoustic guitar. And he has added that he would murmur some French-sounding nonsense.
1: And he
0: mentions a name, Sacha Distel. What does this mean? We are endeavoring to make sense of the thought processes of a
2: teenager. Teenagers.
0: Well, we're striving to do our best here, trying to make sense of the thinking of a teenager. Let's go back to how Paul described his rationale for all of this. It was me, he said, trying to be enigmatic, to make girls think. Who's that very interesting French guy over in the corner? All right, let's break this down. Paul mentions this black turtleneck sweater, and he mentioned Sasha Distel. So who was this Sacha Distel character? The answer is that in the late 50s and early 60s in Europe, Sasha Distel was a famous French crooner. He wrote this song, for example.
2: Oh, la belle vie, sans amour, sans souci, sans problème.
1: Wait, 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 hold on there, mon Flair. Tony Bennett made that song famous.
0: <gasps> Talk back, Mike, you are correct. All right, let's get back to the subject at hand, which is our exploration of this French ballad written by Sasha Distel and how it is connected somehow to Paul's song, Michel. So here we can begin to glimpse Paul's gravitation to the notion of a French-sounding song. Let's explore this other clue that Paul has provided us. When he has shared his recollection of his approach at parties when he was a teenager, he has also mentioned other names and one was Juliette Greco. So who was this person, Juliette Greco? The answer is that she was a French singer, and according to Paul, she was gorgeous. Jean Let's digest what we have discovered so far. The common denominator amongst these disparate clues is that they all have to do with French singers. And French songs. And the French language. So, what we have here, the common thread amongst all these clues is this for Paul, it was to be French. Stated another way, as a teenager, among other things, Paul McCartney wanted to be a French crooner. Let's put a pin in the part where I said among other things. For we will return to that in a moment. The thing I would like to examine now is this notion of Paul McCartney as a teenager wanting to be like this French crooner who was famous throughout Europe, for there is an apt comparison we can now explore. It turns out that there was another teenager, just a little bit of time before this, who had similar Aspirations. So let's take our little time machine and go back a few years more. The year is 1951, and we find ourselves in Memphis, Tennessee. I had said there was another teenager before with similar aspirations. It turns out that his name was Elvis Presley. And so, the apt comparison we have here is that Elvis Presley, before Elvis had made it big, had wanted to model himself upon another singer. And listen to this. The teenaged Elvis had wanted to be Dean Martin.
2: When the moon hits your eye Like a big pizza pie, that's amore
0: So here we have a commonality of shared aspirations. Both Paul McCartney and Elvis Presley had closely studied other performers and had wanted to be them as well. Let me explain what I mean by this. Peter Goralnik is a music historian. He made the point that the teenaged Elvis had wanted to be Dean Martin. In fact, achieving that alone would have satisfied Elvis. Our music historian, Peter Goralnik, also amplified this observation about Elvis that beyond Dean Martin and even Bing Crosby that Elvis wanted to sound like Bill Kenny of The Ink Spots and you can hear that he also wanted to sound like Hoppy Jones he wanted to sound like Clyde McFadder of The Drifters who was the lead singer with The Drifters the doo-wop and R&B soul vocal group <laughs> Peter Goralnik's other key takeaway was that even though Elvis had wanted to sing like Dean Martin or any one of these other role models, what Elvis brought to his performance of any song was something so observably personal. So let us continue with our comparison now. Similarly, Paul McCartney turned out to be a pastiche of singers that he had admired. And it turns out that, of all things, his song, Michel, is a perfect microcosm of this. Why is this? The answer is that with this song, we have a very similar mechanism at work. As a teenager, Elvis Presley would copy other singers that he wanted to emulate. And now we can see that with Paul's song Michel, that when he had been just a teenager, Paul had wanted to be like a French singer of ballads. Oh, I almost forgot. There was another French song that was a huge hit all throughout Europe at this time, which also influenced Paul. It was by another French singer, Edith Piaf. Did I mention she was French?
1: Yes, you just did. <gasps>
0: right. I, your humble narrator, came up with this next mashup to demonstrate this pastiche of French ballads from the time when Paul had been a teenager and how this leads directly into one of the most famous songs of the Beatles, "Michelle." I don't speak French, by the way, but neither did Paul, so forgive me.
2: mother can't he is do don't care don't you
0: Fast forward to the year 1965, and at this point, the song "Michelle" as we know it, did not yet exist. The Beatles have made it by now, however, and they are releasing several singles and two albums every year. And because of this, both John and Paul were faced with the need to come up with new material for their next album. It was always a pressing need. And in this year of 1965, John Lennon perceived a possible solution. For John remembered how it had been when both John and Paul had been at parties as teenagers, and how the young Paul McCartney had messed around with this French-sounding musical imitation. And recollecting this, John Lennon suggested to Paul that Paul ought to complete this French pastiche of his and fashion it into a proper song. And so Paul took him up on this. To Paul, this pastiche that he had played around with seemed to be somehow French. The problem was, he didn't speak French. He needed some help. As it happened, Paul thought to seek out Jan Vaughn, who was a schoolteacher. She had married his friend Ivan Vaughn, who had first introduced Paul to John Lennon back in 1957. And, important to this song, Michel, Jan Vaughn. Our schoolteacher happened to teach French. Let's turn to Jan Vaughn, who has described what transpired. He asked me if I could think of a French girl's name with two syllables, and then a description of the girl which would rhyme. He played me the rhythm on his guitar. Jan Vaughn reflected on this need for a French girl's name having two syllables, and then a rhyming description of this girl. And as Jan described it, and that's what I came up with, Michel Ma Belle, which wasn't actually that hard to think of.
2: Michelle Ma
0: Jan Vaughn then provided a description of what happened next. I think it was some days later that he phones me up and asked if I could translate the phrase, these are words that go together
2: well. These are words
0: And I told him that it should be Son les mon qui vont très bien ensemble Now this is a convenient place to explain two gems that make Paul's construction of the verse to this song so remarkable. The two little gems have to do with Paul's choice of the chords that underlie this verse. The first gem is found just here. Listen to the second chord. It appears in the second measure. Just to accentuate what it is you are hearing, we'll honk our car horn when we come to the chord we are interested in. That second chord that you just heard on the acoustic guitar is the famous... Gretti Chord. We are going to focus for a moment on that chord and answer the following question Why is this chord called the Gretti Chord? The answer is it's called the Gretti Chord because it is named after a person, Jim Gretti. It turns out that this Jim Gretti worked behind the counter at Hesse's music shop, the shop where Paul and George had bought their guitars. Now, this famous chord that is named after Jim Gretti is what is called a dominant 7-sharp-9 chord. I know that is a mouthful, and it is also a handful, which I will explain in a minute. In the case of this song, Michelle, the chord we are talking about is a B-flat 7-sharp-9. Let's break this down a bit. A B-flat chord sounds just like this. ¶¶ but a b flat 7 sharp 9 chord sounds like this It is this chord that mysteriously appears in the second measure of Paul's song Michelle We can get some further background from Paul's recollection when he described having learned this quote, bloody ham-fisted chord, unquote. And the reason Paul describes the chord this way is because the left-hand fingering of the chord requires the hand to be splayed across the six strings on the neck of the guitar. It is what is called a bar chord, making it difficult to have all six notes ring out cleanly. The technique Paul used to compensate to sort of work around this difficulty, is that he strikes the bass note first with his thumb. By striking the bass note first, Paul didn't have to worry about whether the remaining treble notes will ring out cleanly. For on this first beat of this measure, he simply doesn't bother to hit these treble notes. And then, on the next beat of the measure, he abandons the thumb, the bass note, and just flicks a finger against the remaining strings. This takes care of the first two beats in the measure. To finish off the remaining two beats in the measure, he simply repeats what he had previously done, kind of a rinse and repeat. And the use of this chord in the very opening line of the verse of this song, Michelle, makes this melody for a ballad immediately unique. Why is this? It is because the notes of the chord are unique, making the melody that he sings over this chord also very unique. You just don't hear this combination of notes often. Or do we? <gasps> The answer to that question is that there exists in pop music of the 60s and 70s, someone else who hit the same Gretti chord in a different way. (music) This chord was a favorite of Jimi Hendrix. He used it in Purple Haze and it is also implied in Foxy Lady and also in live performances of Voodoo Child. Now, you may recall that I mentioned Paul was challenged with the playing of this ham fisted thing, this Gretty Chord. In Barry Miles' book, Many Years From Now, Barry relates how Paul had described to him the genesis of his song, Michel. There's a very jazzy chord in it, Michelle, Ma Belle. That second chord, that was a chord we used twice with the Beatles, once to end George's solo in Till There Was You, and again when I used it in Michelle. So let's take a little detour to see how the same Gretti chord was used in the ending of George's guitar solo in Till There Was You.
1: Oh, no, we're going to get stuck in a rabbit hole.
0: Not at all. Let's demonstrate. We will hear the Gretti chord just as George's guitar solo finishes up. Now, for fun and clarity, we will honk a car horn just as George plays this chord in his solo. See? Just a short detour. Okay, enough of the Gretti Chord. Now this podcast episode is titled, Michelle, Where Voodoo Meets the Devil. So let's turn to the voodoo part of this little story. To do this, let us focus on the bridge portion of Paul's song, Michelle. It's the part that goes... I love you. With Jan Vaughn's assistance, Paul had completed the verse sections of the song. But he was stumped. He didn't have an idea for what to do for the middle eight for the song. John Lennon explained what happened next. John described that Paul walked into the room one day, humming the verse of the song, and then saying to John, Where do I go from here? At the time, John Lennon had been listening to Nina Simone, an American blues singer, and he immediately thought of her rendition of I Put a Spell on You, in which she emphatically repeats the words, I love you. John suggested that Paul tried to incorporate something bluesy like that. Nina Simone's treatment of this repeated line had a unique cadence. It embodied a kind of rising lamentation. Here's our presentation of the opening verse of this song.
2: I put a spell on you Cause you're mine Ooh ooh You better stop the things that you do Because you put me down, yeah, yeah, I put a spell on you, because you're mine, you're mine.
0: The song is focused on putting a spell on a person in order to save a relationship. We'll explore that notion in a moment. Now, let's turn to the concluding section of this song, I Put a Spell on You. With this last section of this song, we will hear the part that John Lennon had been so impressed with. Here, we are referring to the repeated line, I love you, I love you, I love you, the line that John Lennon suggested to Paul to finish off the writing of the song, Michelle. Listen for this repeated cadence of the line, I love you.
2: I love you anyhow, and I don't care, if you don't want me, I'm yours right now, oh, you hear me, I put a spell on you, because you're mine.
0: What had struck John Lennon with Nina Simone's interpretation of the song was the incessant repeating of the line, I love you. To the listener, it creates a sense of alarm, a dissonance to our ears, and the artist's delivery of the words is the complete opposite of the words themselves. This was to be John Lennon's influence on Paul, a suggestion to make a ballad edgier with a blues influence. Still, Paul was writing a love song, so this bit of input he received from John Lennon got filtered through the lens of Paul McCartney.
2: I love you, I love you, I love you That's all I want to say Until I find-
0: With this, you can see in these two different songs the different treatment accorded to the line, I love you, I love you, I love you. John Lennon and Paul McCartney, for that matter, were unaware of the contextual history of this song, I Put a Spell on You, the black magic, voodoo background of this song. We'll be right back after this short break, so stay with us. We're back now with the Pantheon Podcast Network, and this is Joe Anastasi of Stroll Down Penny Lane, your narrator for our exploration of the life and music of Paul McCartney. Okay, where we left off just now was my comment that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were unaware of the black magic voodoo background of this song, I Put a Spell on You. Let's put this subject up on our examination table. The first thing for us to observe is that Nina Simone did not write the song, I Put a Spell on You. Screamin' Jay Hawkins did.
2: what you say?
0: Jay wrote this song as a slow blues number, lamenting the loss of a girlfriend. During the recording session for this song, the producer, however, was not impressed with the slow nature of the song. So Screamin' Jay Hawkins and his band took a break. They sent out for ribs and chicken and proceeded to get to drinking. After a bit, the recording session resumed, but it soon devolved into chaos. Screamin' Jay Hawkins launched into a weird version of the song, transforming the song into a spooky tale about putting a curse on the girl so the singer could have her. Screamin' Jay Hawkins explained the transformation this way. He explained that he discovered in this recording session that he could do more by, quote, destroying a song and screaming the song to death, end quote. As an aside, the song was banned from most radio shows at the time because of the grunts and groans and what the media referred to as its cannibalistic style. Whatever that means... Screamin' Jay Hawkins, though, was one of a kind. If you've never heard of him, you should definitely check out one of his performances on YouTube. See if you can find a clip. What you'll see is that just as his stage act was to begin, the theater lights would be darkened, and then Screamin' Jay would be wheeled onto the stage in a coffin. <laughs> You heard that correctly. Screamin' Jay Hawkins would be wheeled onto the stage in a coffin. So picture this, if you will. On stage, in the midst of smoke and fog, Screamin' Jay Hawkins would slowly rise out of this flaming coffin with tusks worn in his nose. And around him would be numerous snakes and fireworks sparklers. And to top it off, he would brandish a bizarre cigar smoking skull on a stick named Talkback Mike No, my bad. The skull on a stick was named Henry. I misread my notes here. I don't know how that happened.
1: I know exactly how that happened.
0: Okay, but we will save that for another day.
1: Just
2: another day.
0: Now, the performance antics of Screamin' Jay Hawkins turned out to be the precursor to the later shock rock shenanigans of the rock group KISS. Hey, TBM,
1: were you a KISS fan? Sure, when I was a kid, I was a KISS fan. KISS was a massive spectacle show, certainly. And there were others as well. Alice Cooper, The Plasmatics, Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie, Guar. I'm trying to keep the shock. Separate from the glam.
0: Got it. But back to the voodoo aspects of this song, I Put a Spell on You, where the protagonist is asserting that he, or she for that matter, in the case of Nina Simone's version, will control their lover by putting them under some kind of voodoo spell. But this was what this song was about. And just a bit of this was what John Lennon and Paul McCartney injected into the Beatles' song Michelle. And with this, There can be no better example of the Beatles' successful fusion or blending of disparate cultural influences, whether they be the inspiration of French existential ballads or the influence of straight-up blues or the transmogrification of voodoo shock rock, resulting in a song, Michel, becoming a massive hit. Let's turn to the next subject in our examination, Paul McCartney's playing of bass guitar, for Paul has described that it was his playing of his bass guitar on this song, Michel, that actually transformed him as a musician. Let me explain what he meant by this. In the early days of the Beatles, Paul had long admired the melodic bass lines of Motown's James Jamerson. A little bit later, another significant influence for Paul's bass playing came along. It turns out that Paul was significantly influenced by Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. This was because the bass lines on the later Beach Boys songs were not moored to the root note of a chord, and this was a striking departure for pop music. Paul explained it this way. Brian went to very unusual places. With the Beach Boys, the band might be playing in C, but the bass might stay on the G just to hold it back. But with Paul's song, Michelle, there was an additional transformation, and that was exactly this. The manner in which Paul's bass part was being recorded actually physically changed. Let me explain this and how this led to the transformation of this song, Michelle. During each of the previous Abbey Road recording sessions, Paul's bass part had always been recorded by placing a microphone in front of the speaker of his bass amp. Paul would then participate in recording the rhythm track for the song, along with Ringo and George and John. But for the first time ever, on this song, Michelle, the recording process for the song changed. The recording of the song itself was just about complete, but Paul's bass part had yet to be added. To arrange for this last requirement, Paul and George Martin determined to have Paul sit in the control room with his bass and then plug the instrument directly into the recording equipment. In the final mix, this recording process would result in a dry, edgy, and punchy-sounding bass. With Paul sitting there in the control room, listening to the raw mix of the song as he played, this new work process yielded another unforeseen benefit. Paul was now free to experiment melodically with the creation of his bass line for the song, and for Paul, this freedom was an epiphany. He explained this experience. I remember that opening six-note phrase against the descending chords in Michelle. That was like, oh, a great moment in my life. ¶¶ So take a listen to our intro of this song, just as Paul described it, and listen to the opening phrase that Paul devised for the bass, and how this part nestles against the acoustic guitar's descending chords, which Paul had also devised and played on the original recording. Okay, that seems to cover things.
1: (laughs) Oh, professore. The title of this podcast mentioned something else in addition to voodoo?
2: Morning, Energy cell exhausted.
1: Ah,
0: talk back, Mike. Once more to the rescue. To develop this unnamed subject that our precocious producer, a platitudinous perspicuity talk back mic is referring to, we need to go back in time once again using our little time machine. Here we have landed again in Liverpool. We are in central Liverpool to be precise. The year is 1958, and we see we are just in front of Hesse's, the music shop in Whitechapel, where Paul and George Harrison had purchased their guitars as teenagers. Let's head inside and take the staircase up one flight to an upstairs room. Inside this room, we see there are several teenagers sitting in chairs, fiddling with the guitars they have in hand. In the front of the room, we see a chalkboard. And in front of the chalkboard, we can see Jim Gretty, the music store manager, with his sleeves rolled up and holding a blackboard eraser in his left hand and a piece of white chalk in his right hand. And on the blackboard, he is chalking guitar chord shapes. And this is the beginner's class. But today is the day that Jim Gretty is describing a slightly more advanced chord shape. He is explaining how useful this chord shape can be. And two of the rapt students this day include young George Harrison, furiously jotting the shapes down in his notebook, and our other teenager, Paul McCartney. So let me describe what it is that has their rapt attention this day. Jim Gretty has just sketched on the blackboard the shape of what he has just called a diminished seventh chord. Let me demonstrate how this diminished chord sounds, and then describe its use in this song of Paul's, Michelle. Each note in a diminished seventh chord is spaced three half-steps away from another. The 3 whole step spacing is also called a tritone. Hey, TBM, why don't you provide a definition for us about what it is that comprises a tritone?
1: A tritone is the interval encompassed by three consecutive whole steps. That is why they are called tritones. Each note is three whole steps away. The diminished 7 chord you were just describing embodies two tritones.
0: Thank you for that, TBM. Now, what Paul and George learned from Jim Gretty included three other interesting facts about any diminished 7th chord. And then there was one thing that Jim Gretty didn't tell Paul and George.
1: So that makes four things?
0: Correct, but who's counting? The first thing that Jim Gretti described to his rapt little audience of teenagers was how a diminished seventh chord is useful in constructing the chord progression in any song.
1: I'm interested in the one thing that Jim Gretti didn't tell the boys.
0: TBM, hang on for a moment. I'll get to that. Patience. As I was explaining just now, this first useful thing is this. This type of chord can spice up the song to make it different or interesting. This happens because the notes in the chord are different from the typical selection of notes in a song that is more simply constructed. Paul and George both took note of this. For example, later, while in the Beatles, Paul selected a song to perform, Till There Was You. In this song, the second measure of the verse contains a diminished seventh chord. Here it is under the words, on a hill.
2: There are bells on a hill.
0: For fun, we'll honk the car horn when we arrive at this diminished seventh chord.
2: There are bells on a hill.
0: And it turns out that just at this juncture of the song, the selection of this F-sharp diminished chord turns out to be a useful connecting device between the first chord in the first measure and F chord to the next chord that will follow in the succeeding measure, which will be a G minor chord. Let me break this down. We can summarize things this way. In this song, the diminished chord is doing double duty. Numero uno It is providing the ability to select some distinctive notes for the melody. And Dos Equis, with an F-sharp as its root, it is serving as a chromatic bridge from the F chord in the first measure to the G minor chord in the third measure.
1: Dos Equis is a beer.
0: TBM, thank you for that point of clarification. All right, we were talking about the three things that this Jim Gretty imparted to the lads about this diminished chord and how Paul used it to such great effect in his song, "Michelle."
1: That's four things, Joe, four things. Remember, I am interested in the one thing that Jim Gretti didn't tell the boys. So that makes four things. Talk
0: back, Mike. Hang on for a moment. I'll get to that. All we need is a little patience.
2: All we need is just a little patience.
0: So let me continue. The second thing that Jim Gretty described to the boys was that a diminished chord can be substituted for the more common five chord in a song. That would also make a song sound different, more interesting perhaps than just a common blues number. And the use of this kind of diminished chord would create a temporary sense of dissonance. And then our Mr. Jim Gretty would describe that the songwriter could then resolve this dissonance by immediately going to the five chord. The reason that this would work so well was because the root note of the diminished chord was an immediate neighbor of the root note of the five chord. So you can think of this as a trick. We are going to land on a note, but approach it first from a neighbor note kind of sneaky. Not sneaky. Sneaky is just my way of describing the effect of this technique. And here is how Paul used it in his song, "Michelle." First, you will hear the C chord, which is the five chord in the song, and how it toggles to a B diminished seventh chord, which you will hear just on the words, my Michel. Then it gets resolved immediately, to the C chord, which has its root note only one semitone higher. So here we go with a listen. First, we demonstrate with just the guitar chords toggling back and forth with root notes only one semitone away from each other. Now, second, let's put it together with the lyrics. The third thing that Jim Gretti described is specific to the guitar.
1: My dear professore, when are we going to get to that one thing that Jim Gretti did not tell the boys? That's what we want to know.
0: Dear listeners, I think our strategy ought to be to just ignore him.
2: All we need is just a little...
0: The third thing that Jim Gretty described to the lads is particular to the physical layout of a guitar. And this definitely caught the attention of a specific teenager. For this teenager, Paul McCartney played around with this feature on his acoustic guitar endlessly. And I mean literally for years before finally using this feature in completing his song, Me the feature Jim Gretty demonstrated was as follows. On a guitar, if the fingers on your left hand adopt a specific fingering or shape for a diminished seventh chord, the chord shape itself is movable. This would have been a revelation to the two teenagers, both Paul and George. By movable, I mean you can keep your fretting fingers in one shape and simply move this shape of this chord up the neck of the guitar by three frets, and you will have the same chord, but it will be voiced differently.
1: My dear professore! When are we going to get to the one thing that Jim Gretti didn't tell the boys. That's what we want to know.
0: Patience, please. Be patient. We are almost there. Let's just focus on the song, Michel. Here is an example for you, dear listener, to see how this movable chord sounds. And the reason for this is directly related to the song, Michel. First, let's listen to this chord being struck once. And then again a second time after it is moved up three frets, and again a third time after it is moved up another three frets on the neck of the guitar, and then one more time as it is struck a fourth time, but this time after being moved down the same three frets on the guitar. Sound familiar? Here it is again, but this time with the lyrics. If you listen closely, you will hear the movement of these diminished 7th chord inversions just here on the words, Go Together.
2: These are-
0: What we have here is the fact that the actual notes in this diminished seventh chord are what so distinctly frame the melody of this song, making it so unique. And this is occurring as early as the fourth measure of the verse. The song, Michel just wouldn't be the same without these notes and without the mechanical aspect of how the chord shape on the neck of the guitar can be moved up and down three frets, just as Paul has done here. So, Mr. Talkback Mike, are you there? Are you ready? Well, ready or not, we have...
1: Uh, What?
0: Ah, I see we have gotten the attention of Talkback Mike.
1: What's up? You done with that till-there-wasn't-you stuff? We have arrived at the moment
0: of truth, the denouement of all that you have wished for.
1: The what now? Denouement. I love when you speak French to me.
0: Well, how about that for Symmetry? The song Michel is all about French influence. So we have arrived at the final part of the narrative, in which the strands of the plot are drawn together and matters are explained and resolved. We have arrived at the moment of truth.
2: Moment of truth!
1: And just what is revealed in this moment of truth. The one
0: thing about the use of diminished seventh chords that Jim Gretty did not tell Paul and George or John, for that
1: matter. Now your thumb drive is inserted correctly.
0: Do not touch it. It is dangerous. Do not.
1: And what was that one thing? Pray tell. That one thing that Jim Gretti did not tell Paul and George or John. That
0: the tritone intervals in that chord long ago were called the devil's interval and were banned by the church in the late Middle Ages. And with that... We have the little devil in Michelle.
1: Oh, my my God. Oh, my (laughs) God.
2: Oh, my God. Michelle, my belle. These are words that go together well. My Michelle.
1: Wait. You're going to end this podcast there? Yep. You're going to just stop there? Leaving us hanging without explaining this devil's interval? Yep.
0: Suspense
1: is good. You can't do that. Leaving people hanging? You have to explain why it is called the devil's interval.
0: Okay, okay, okay. I will explain. Back in the Middle Ages, it was believed that the devil was personified in a particular musical interval. This musical interval is separated by three whole steps, a tritone. In Europe, it was the church, really, that expressed a belief all throughout the Middle Ages that this tritone interval represented the devil. This is why they called it the devil's interval, because the sound of these musical tones had an unsettling, ambiguous feeling. As a consequence of this, there actually used to be rules against writing music that contained this interval. During this period of time, which was during the Renaissance period, the theory was that music was to be beautiful and represent the majesty of God. So here we have it, the Devil's Interval expresses a feeling of musical tension. But as time went by and the church could no longer dictate these things, composers employed the use of the devil's interval to actually express this tension. Here is an example of that. The music you will hear is purposefully unsettling. It is the prelude to the first act of Wagner's opera, Tristan and Isolde. So there you go. We've explored Paul's song, Michelle, and the voodoo underpinnings to this song, and we have also explored the devil in Michelle. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast of Stroll Down Penny Lane. Please join us again next time as we explore further the life and music of Paul McCartney. And come see us at one of our shows if you're in the neighborhood. You'll find us at strolldownpennylane.com slash podcast or with your favorite podcast app. We are a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
2: And-